Hello everyone. Welcome to our Unit 2 lecture on the Renaissance. What was the Renaissance? Well, it was between 1425 and 1600. The word Renaissance actually means rebirth. After the Black Plague, Europe was decimated. Um, about one-third of the population of the entire continent died. Um, it was a very dark time and things like science and architecture and art kind of withered away because people were just trying to survive. Now, that's not to say that prior to the Renaissance there were no innovations in these things. It's just that after such a tragedy like the Black Plague, the Renaissance was kind of a reset button that really started the march of progress forward again. The Renaissance also marks the beginning of the use of the term humanism. Now that's different, they use it differently than we use the word humanism today. Today humanism is touted as an alternative to religion. A lot of times you'll hear people call themselves secular humanists, which sort of means that uh, they're people that don't necessarily believe in God, but believe in being good to each other. In the Renaissance, humanism meant something different. It meant that people were starting to put their faith into technology and the march of progress while still retaining faith in some sort of a higher power. However, the tide was starting to change and um, the importance of religion and the church was ever so, so slowly starting to wane. There were many advances during this period in science, philosophy, literature, art, and music. Almost every branch of the human endeavor saw huge gains during the Renaissance period. The Renaissance was also the time of the Protestant Reformation. The Protestant Reformation started in Germany, but had been simmering all over the continent, um, especially during the years of the Black Plague. Um, there were many different reasons why the Reformation happened, but it boils down to uh, political reasons where leaders of the various countries wanted to be free of the shackles of what they considered to be rule under the Pope. And there were also, of course, many theological differences between the way that Protestant reformers like Luther saw the world and um, the Catholic Church. So the result was you had one united Christian church splinter into four or five and then ten and then twenty and so on different Protestant denominations. However, these days and then we tend to just think of two major groups when we talk about music as related to this course. We'll talk about music in the Protestant church and music in the Catholic church. Sacred music in the Renaissance era changed. Up until this point, the church had sung in Latin because Latin was the official language of the church. Uh, no matter where you went in Western Europe, if you attended Mass prior to the Reformation, you would uh, listen to the Mass being said in Latin. Uh, of course, this was a problem for many people because they couldn't understand Latin, and so one of the reforms that the Protestants introduced was making their church services in the vernacular. This also applied to hymns as well, and songs in church started to be sung in whatever language the country was that, that you spoke. 
Protestants and Catholics also develop different words for similar things. Now, there are many theological terms that this applies to, but in the course of music, um, a Catholic a cappella piece, that's a piece with no instrumental accompaniment, was known as a motet. A Protestant a cappella piece was known as an anthem. Um, Protestants really wanted to differentiate what they were doing from what the Catholics were doing. Let's talk about our first composer of the Renaissance period. This is Jacques Desprez. He was a French composer, and he was really good at personifying um, different natural sounds in his music. Uh, people really got a kick out of hearing what they perceived to be, you know, different insect sounds or bird sounds coming out of their musical instruments. Um, he was so famous that other composers wrote pieces and had them published under his name, and then, but they would still reap the rewards. They just figured anything with his name on it, it'll sell. It's kind of like how you buy knockoff licensed Star Wars apparel or something like that at the flea market. So, Depre's big piece was the cricket. At least that's the one that we're going to be focusing on in this lesson. Um, the cricket is a piece that is programmatic. We're going to hear about programmatic pieces for the rest of this course, and that just means that it's music that tells a story or you're supposed to have something in mind when you hear it. Um, it praises the singing of cricket over birds. So because the cricket can sing drinking songs, when the weather turns warm, he sings of love. Um, there's four voice polyphony here. So once again, just to review, monophony is where you have one voice or many people singing the same part at the same time. And then polyphony, or a polyphonic texture, is where you have multiple voices singing different parts and each one of those parts is of equal importance. Now, um, Depre uses word painting. Word painting is a feature of music where when you write lyrics, you make the music do what the lyrics say. So if you wanted to sing a, a song about how high the moon was, you might say, how high the moon. You'd go up for high, and that would, that's an example of word painting. So the cricket actually sounds at one point, you'll listen when you listen to the recording, as if it is hiccuping. Um, the word um, love, which is amor, is treated with a melisma. And let's do a quick review of what a melisma is. That is where you take a single syllable and you stretch it out over multiple notes. So love, that's a melisma. The opposite of melisma is syllabic, where one word per syllable, or one note per syllable. Next we have our composer Thomas Wilkes, and there's, it's, we're not quite sure how he pronounced his name because English spelling and pronunciation was so varied at this time. Um, but he, there are no photographs that um, exist of him, of course, and there are no paintings. Um, not many photographs floating around in the Renaissance. He probably composed music for Shakespeare. Shakespeare's plays always had musical accompaniment, either during changes of scenes or different things. And uh, we don't know for sure, but scholars believe that he was probably active with Shakespeare. He served as an organist. Most composers were organists or choir masters at this time. Um, at Chickasaw 
Cathedral until he was dismissed for drunkenness and blasphemy. Uh, No images exist of him, as I said, unfortunately. His piece is called Since Robin Hood. Of course, this is a secular piece. And uh, it's music meant for dancing. So this is uh, vocal music. There are singers, but we want uh, the, the composer envisioned people dancing to this piece. And at this time, all of the dancers, it wasn't like everyone was dancing on a floor. You had people coming up and dancing just like a ballet. And at this time, all the dancers were men. In the theater, during the Renaissance, um, at least during the early part of the Renaissance, only men were allowed on stage in England. In Europe, it was a whole different thing. But in England, only men were allowed on stage. And so men would play women's parts, and they dress as women, and they use a really high falsetto voice. It wasn't until after the monarchy was restored in England when women were introduced to the stage for the first time. So some musical aspects of Since Robin Hood. Uh, this is an example of a madrigal. And a madrigal, this is kind of a definition within a definition, a madrigal is a musical setting of a single stanza. Now, what's a stanza? A stanza is like a a paragraph in poetry. So if you ever read a poem and you notice how it's kind of broken up into chunks, one of those chunks is called a stanza. Um, So madrigals are always music that are set to poetry, but a particular part of poetry, a single stanza. Uh, This is an example of polyphony in three voices, and it uses something called iambic rhythm. And this is something, this is a musical device that's used in many different pieces where you have short, long, short, long. You can think about amazing grace, how sweet the sound. It's based on iambic rhythm. So let's talk about William Byrd next. William Byrd was a Catholic in a Protestant country. And you might think, well, what's the big deal about that? We live in a country where everybody, you can be whatever religion you want or have no religion. But in Reformation England, under the reign of Queen Elizabeth, this was a very dangerous thing. Um, Because of several uh, series of events, uh, Catholics in England were uh, mistreated, mistrusted, and hated. England, of course, was a Protestant country. And so how did William Byrd survive? Well, he survived uh, by being very good at what he did and by composing pieces for the Church of England. Although he kept kind of a private Catholic faith, he was active as a composer in the Church of England. His piece, Sing Joyfully, is a piece called, depending on what denomination you are, a motet or an anthem. As you might recall, a motet is what you'd call a Catholic a cappella piece. Protestants called this same piece an anthem. So he composed this for the Church of England. So they would say, this is a new anthem by William Byrd called Sing Joyfully. It's an example of polyphony in six voices. So we're really pushing polyphony almost as far as it can go. When you've got six people singing six different parts and they all have an equal weight, Um, it really, we're talking about a very thick, dense texture. And uh, to kind of close this out, we have Polyphony in the Bahamas. Um, This is our world music section. 
and the rhyming singers of the Bahamas are going to perform a piece for you called My Lord Help Me to Pray, which was recorded in 1965. Um, this is an example of rhyme singing. So you have this kind of call and response that we associate also with African-American spirituals, where you have one person sings out a line and then a big group of people sings right back to them. And if you listen to this recording, you'll see that it is kind of a predecessor to reggae music. So listen to those connections. Make sure that you listen to the examples that are um, all of the listening examples and read the listening guides as you listen to the examples. And it will really make these pieces come alive because it gives you things to listen for and things to think about so you're not just drifting off. As always, if you have any questions, feel free to shoot me an email at john.schaller at wvstateu.edu. We'll see you next time.